Welcome to Empowered by Women for Women. This podcast brings you inspirational women, their stories, their successes, and their experiences along the way. Join us to be challenged and inspired, brought to you by Invintage and hosted by myself, Trudy Kerr. Today's guest is a well-known face across the Maltese Islands, an expert in corporate and external affairs, as well as in foundation and non-profit management. My guest also has a history in journalism with the Times of Malta. But Kim Darley is also an accomplished actor and caught my attention a few weeks ago when she posted, privileged to be have part of two award-winning productions during what was arguably the toughest year for the arts sector. Zoom won the Innovation Award and they blew her up, won the Production of the Year Award at Premier Al Arti. I'm really excited. Kim Darley, first of all, congratulations on those awards. But before we go that, we've just had a, a chat before we came on to this podcast and you've just thrown a whole bunch of new topics for us to discuss during this, uh, this episode of Empowered. So I actually right now have no idea where this is going, but I'm really excited, Kim, to have you here. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> I am so excited to be with you here, Trudy. Um, phenomenal woman, followed you for years. So privileged to be here. Thank you so I, much. Well, I'm just thrilled. <laughs> and I really do mean congratulations because those two productions, and we're going to talk about They Blew Her Up a little bit later on because it's such an epic and important uh, play and production. We'll talk about it a little bit later on, but well done. Congratulations both on Zoom and They Blew Her Up. I was going to talk to you about your work, but you came in and you told me about two other projects that you're involved in that I'd like to touch on before we talk about you as an actress. You have been a journalist, as I mentioned. You're also this expert in, in corporate and external affairs uh, and, and all these sorts of things. But you just sat down and you said, well, you know, I'd, I wouldn't mind talking about two projects, one of which is an exhibition relating to narcissism, which sounds bizarre and strange, but I really want you to share this with me because I think it affects so many people and so many women. So what is this? So I was engaged on behalf of the St. Jean Antite Foundation, which is a local non-profit organization that helps so, so many vulnerable families. And within the, that NGO, um, they also have a peer-led support group called SOAR, in, through which they um, support survivors female survivors of domestic violence in Malta. Um, and they had, and I, I do some, I'm a volunteer with them, so I do some volunteer work with them. And they had engaged me to curate this exhibition where two phenomenal female artists in Malta, Carol Bizzottil and Amy Abella, um, they created these um, beautiful artworks expressing the journey that one goes through and the, the, the impact on one's mental health when one lives or has just escaped from a relationship with a narcissist. And it was so interesting and at the same time quite an eye-opener to actually delve on what it means, the, the way that, that their voices have been pulverized. It's a very silent type of abuse because narcissists put up this mask, this facade in public and, and they appear a certain way, and sometimes even their closest family and friends don't actually understand what's going on and, and don't always believe them. Um, so when you start stripping away 
you know, those layers and you really find out just how, um, you know, the, how severe and how harrowing such an abuse is because they just literally strip you of your voice. And in fact, when I was curating this exhibition of these beautiful artworks, um, I was trying to come up with the title. And through my conversations with these women, um, I came up with the title called Un, in brackets, Silenced, because that's what this exhibition is. It's a message of hope, of giving back, you know, empowering women with their voices, giving them back their voices, unsilencing them, and allowing them to spread the message of hope and empowerment that, yes, you know, there's so much more than that. They can make it on their own. With the right help, with the right support, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Because narcissism, if anybody's listening and they're not familiar with it, it is it's a well-documented condition. Uh, it, it Not only men, but women can have narcissistic behaviour. And one of the traits of that behaviour is that it is a, a period, a, a, a deterioration over a period of time of the person that is the victim of the narcissist. So I myself had a long-term relationship with a narcissist and at one point... I had told myself I would, if anybody was ever violent towards me, I'd walk out. And I got punched in the face, I got a black eye. And I can remember family members saying, why didn't you just walk out? Well, because it's not a process. So you don't have that experience on the first date. You have that experience once you are depowered, unpowered, where you, all your control and your power is taken away. And then you find yourself in a situation where you do feel completely helpless and, and stripped, as you said. I mean, what a perfect way of putting it. You're just slowly stripped of everything that empowers you. Yeah, it's an erosion of self, of your identity. You know, it's, your voice is completely pulverized. You start to believe that, you know, you're a waste of oxygen. You know, what are you, what are you doing? You're worthless. You're nothing. Because that's, that's you know, the, the traits of narcissistic abuse. So this exhibition is taking place where? So at the moment it is, um, it is based at uh, the APS Bank's headquarters in Swata. Um, it's there until beginning of July, um, should anyone wish to, 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 to watch it. And also as part of it, what I did is we, I directed um, a short video, a short film, short featurette, so to speak, whereby I used excerpts, different excerpts from the poetry of Amy Abela, um, combined them together to make a narrative, and I cast four incredibly talented actresses to portray um, the emotion and this, this journey of a woman who went through narcissistic abuse and eventually emerged from it. And this video can be seen um, across social media channels and also in all the APS branches. They have um, a screen with the video going on on the loop, so if people catch it. And it's there. on social media, so we can link it to this yeah. podcast. That is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm, it's a very a subject that's quite n near to me at the moment um, through someone I, I care very much about. And one of the challenges is just if you're in a narcissistic relationship is you feel very isolated you feel that you are the only person who is experiencing these emotions and I think that idea of acknowledging it and saying no this is an actual thing this actually happens and it actually happens to an awful lot of women and men 
Yes. Because it's not confined to women only. But in Precisely. the context of the of the exhibition, I'm assuming it's applicable to... Yes, in this case, the focus was on, on women. But precisely, no, it is not something that afflicts only women. And, and the, the message that we wanted to convey is that there is hope and that you can successfully get out of it, but you have to reach out, you know, confide. There are support organisations, non-governmental organisations. There is help out there. So, you know, don't, don't, don't be afraid. And I think also just... I think sometimes we feel that what we're going through isn't important enough to warrant the term abuse. And therefore we don't reach out. Sometimes it creeps on you so gradually. It's not something that, you know, is, is you don't, they don't, you know, abusers don't come to you with a massive poster on their head saying, you know, hi, I'm an abuser, you know, that's, that's not how it works. So it just gradually creeps upon you, you know, and slowly and slowly each layer is stripped away from you. And sometimes you say, oh, it's a lapse or he made a mistake or she made a mistake and let, let's excuse that. And then that happens again. But oh, that's another mistake. And, and before you know it and and certain concepts as well are not even um, acknowledged. Something that sometimes we do talk about as well, even uh, within the context of the NGO is also rape, for example, within marriage, which is sometimes I meet women who don't even understand that that's actually a thing so i think it's really good to have that awareness out there so this is your role within the foundation now you're already a very busy woman but you've made time and you've made this a priority in your life and you work within this foundation so what does that look like what do you do on a daily day-to-day basis so i was eventually um initially when i um joined the saint jean Antique foundation as a volunteer i still am a volunteer um they had a program uh support um, peer mentor program whereby they connected me with a young woman who was a single mother um, and basically I acted as her mentor I was like this older sister this perhaps stable presence in her life that she never had um, and the journey was absolutely incredible. I met this woman, woman when she was living with her child in a shelter. She had no um, place of her own. She had no job. She was living off benefits. And throughout the course of um, a year, a year and a half, she slowly emerged from that shell and nowadays has a successful job. She's living in her own um, apartment that she's renting. Um, so you just basically, I don't think, all I did basically is just put a mirror in front of her and, and, and I showed her what I, how I saw her because she couldn't see that. That's all. I just showed her what I could see in her. And That's you have the biggest grin on your face because we quite often feel like volunteering is, is a burden. or it, But it sounds to me like you actually got more out of it than, than yes. anybody else. Yes. Oh, it's so, so fulfilling on so many levels. So many levels. And the NGO is just incredible. I found a second family there in all the staff members as well. It's just so rewarding. And the NGO is called Nice and Slowly. The Saint Jean Antide Foundation. Okay. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to be, right after this podcast, I'm going to be going looking that up because it sounds really empowering and that's, of course, what we're all about. But then let's move from there. You also mentioned, I, honestly, seriously, Kim, my, my podcast has been thrown out the window today because you mentioned another project you're involved in, which will nicely lead into another part of your life, which is acting and being part of that process, the acting and the, and the, the directing and the production and, and being involved in that. And you mentioned this production that you're involved in at the moment and I immediately sat up because I've heard this production being mentioned before 
And it's about the women that are never talked about. Precisely. So I, I, I call this my baby. It's been one long labor, <laughs> but I'm very close to giving birth to this, to this beautiful project. Um, so I, I'm working together with um, Sharpshoot Media, and they've engaged me um, to be the researcher and the scriptwriter and the presenter of a docudrama focusing on the wartime contributions of Maltese and Malta-based women. It's a topic which is extremely interesting and so important on so many levels. First of all, the war is explored as a subject, but always through a very masculine lens. And half the population are women. So what about them? What happened then? And there's so very little literature about it. it in fact, I had to do a lot of my research in the archives. Um, there is literature such as a master's dissertation by Simon Cousins and, you know, um, chapters peppered across different books. But nothing, there's, there's, not, there's not a lot about that. There's a book called Ladies of Lascaris by Paul MacDonald. But, but there's, there's, there's so much to discover. So I would just, you know, head to the National Archives of Malta. And from here, I thank them. All the staff there have been absolutely supportive and so wonderful with me. And I would just spend hours just digging into these old, you know, documents, parchments, papers, and like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, you find a paragraph about a woman there, and you find a letter there, and you find another document there, and then you find something in an, an old newspaper article, and you start piecing it together, and then you approach the relatives, and who again have been kind enough to welcome me into their homes and give me access to private documentation, and again, you start building these stories closely, slowly, slowly, and the stories are just incredible. There were so many phenomenal women, and their contribution is of national importance, and I'm going to tell you why. Because the women's wartime work, and that is the argument I will make also in the docudrama, directly contributed to the acquisition of women's voting rights in Malta in 1947. Maltese women did not have the right to vote before 1947, so during the war, Maltese women did not have the right to vote. But during the war, Maltese women were essentially the engine keeping Malta's economy running because men were conscripted. They had to go and, and, and be part of the military of the war effort. So women essentially took on this role upon themselves. And in fact, I do find um, various articles and documentation. There was an association formed um, during the war period called the Women of Malta Association. And they publish articles and they say, listen, you know, we were entrusted with the country's economy during the war. Why can't you trust us with a blooming vote? <laughs> I, I fear that you, you're so animated. I have a feeling that you'd ra rather use stronger language than just a blooming vote. Um, but, you know, you touched on that, and that applies to the role of women during the war in the US, in the UK, across Europe, and in Malta as well. Women stepped up. And they changed the course of history for all the women after that. We are beneficiaries of the work that they did and the contribution that they gave in the Second World War. We have the right to vote. We have the right to work. We have uh, so many women's rights because of what they did. Precisely. But you, you did get very impassioned about that. And you talked about these incredible examples without revealing your labor birth <laughs> of this documentary. <laughs> Can you give me an example of a story that really touched you? Oh, numerous of them. 
one of them, an incredible woman, um, she was actually based in, in, in Rome, a Maltese woman called Henrietta Chevalier. She was a widow, a mother of eight children, and she had um, emigrated to Italy with her husband, who had found employment there, and was about to return to Malta um, when war sort of started brewing. But then in 1940, Mussolini declared war, so she found herself trapped in Mussolini's fascist state. And she lived in this small apartment in Rome with her children. Her eldest son was imprisoned in a prison camp. Her other son escaped that because he was part of a, he worked at the Swiss legation and his, he had diplomatic immunity and he, she lived with her daughters there. And she formed part of the secret underground network that was headed by a particular Monsignor from the Vatican, a certain uh, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. And this op underground operation was responsible for saving over 2,000 prisoners of war and Jews. So basically, between 1943 and 1944, the Nazis occupied Rome. And you had a number of prisoners of war in the interim between when Mussolini um, you know, raised the, the, the white flag of defeat and when the Nazis came in, that interim period you had a lot of people escaping from the prison camps. And the Nazis marched into Rome and then they made it um, a crime to harbour any um, prisoners on the run. And when I say a crime, you don't get, you know, a, a prison sentence. You're shot. You're executed. That, simple as that. And she utilized her little apartment, she would stow away, you know, these, these people on the run, you know, prisoners of war. Um, and she was under constant surveillance from the SS, from the Nazis, who raided her apartment, her apartment multiple times, but yet she always managed to outwit them. And what really breaks my heart that she, she was she, she she was such a crucial crucial driving force. She was the first person Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty had approached to answer his call to help these people on the run. And what I then discovered through my archival research was something extremely, extremely tragic because this woman gave so much. And then after the war she developed what I found in the archives termed as paranoia, probably today we would call it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and she spent the rest of her days at Mount Carmel Hospital, which is where she passed away. And no one knows about her anymore. There's, there's, there's a plaque in the Aviation Museum, but most people out there in the streets don't know who she is, and she gave so much. And I was recently speaking to a former nurse at Mount Carmel who remembers her. And she used to, and she says that I, she remembers her very clearly. She used to insist that she's called mummy because the soldiers used to call her mummy when, 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 when she used to, to be part of this operation. And this nurse also told me, she told me, we always would see her shaking her head from one side to the other. And one day this nurse asked her and she said, why are you shaking your head, Mrs. Chevalier? And she says, oh, I'm on the lookout. They're coming. You know, I have to be vigilant. Wow. So she paid the ultimate price, and, and no one knows about her. And like her, there are so many other stories as well. So, so if at least these people can be recognized, if at least the name comes to the public fore, if at least students and schools can learn about these women, Maltese women who have done so much, then I think, you know, that will be a massive achievement. And of course, 
knowing these stories is incredibly empowering. And this what this is what we've been doing throughout this this podcast is trying to empower people by by empower women by recognizing that there are women who have gone out there and done things like this and changed the course of history. So this is a, a production. This is a, a play. This is where is this happening? So What's this happening? is a, a docudrama. It will be an eight-part episode. It's it will be called "The Women of George Cross Island." Um, we got funding to show it locally, and we also obtained funding to take it abroad. So um, that will be the next step. Once it's aired locally, we'll be able to take it abroad and hopefully, you know, spread the message there. Which would be amazing. Which leads me on to ask, is it in English or Maltese? So it's in English. It's, um, yes, it's in English um, with, um, so it's produced and um, by Sharpshoot Media. The director is Justin Faruja and the lead editor is Angel Faruja, who's a woman as well. So it's very much of a female effort as well. As well with the men, we're all collaborating together for for this project. And when does this come out? And where does it come out? So hopefully it will be out later this year. Um, hopefully it will be most probably it will, it will be on go, um, so people would be able to view it there. And from there onwards, we don't know where we're going to take it, but hopefully we'll be able to take it abroad. So we'll I see. I am so excited. And your role within this project, just to to touch on that again, you are obviously the researcher. You're the screenwriter. I'm the presenter, but I present it in a very different way. So what I did is rather than, um, you know, sort of having this cumbersome process of voiceovers constantly and then, you know, having to stop the reenactments to look at the sort of the focus on the presenter and then cut back, I am a background character in the stories of the women. So if it's, I don't know, a story focusing on the times of Malta during the war, so I'm a journalist in the background typing away, and when I need to explain something, the camera just pans on me. I explain what I need to explain, then bang, back oh, on the women. brilliant. So it's very non-invasive, and I'm just there in the background explaining what I need to explain. And also the other positive thing is that I get to dress up in the fashion and costume of the time, and I could not miss out of that. I love that period, so... Yeah, <laughs> so you are happy. Too bad with one stone. Absolutely amazing, and it it sounds like an absolute must for any woman, to be honest with you, whether they're in Malta or not, uh, because the story is synonymous with every woman in the world. Yes, and and there are women of multiple nationalities as well. So Maltese in Malta, Maltese abroad, foreign women in Malta, UK women, British women in Malta. I have a lot of that as well who were doing the bit in Malta. So it's a very international story, yes. I'm so excited for you. I'm really excited. And that really nicely leads into your passion of acting, theatre and so on. I want to talk about another woman who is the subject of a play. And that, of course, is They Blew Her Up, which is the story of uh, Daphne Caruana Galizia. I have to say at this point, it is emphasised always that it's a fictional story. It's not necessarily the facts. And, of course, you have to say that because of what's happening with the, the unclosed case of Daphne's murder. It's written and directed by Herman Grech, and it really does explore one of the biggest shocks uh, to the Maltese island. I think every single person on the island will know where they were when they heard about this assassination. I know I was on air, I was on radio, and I was trying to tackle how do I share this story that somebody's just been assassinated. And of course, we all knew who she was because she was a very active journalist and she was very much looking at digging up 
anything to do with corruption within the government, and that would suggest that that's why she was assassinated. The play has been performed here in Malta, but more recently was also performed in Brussels. And you're within this play. You play a journalist, of which, of course, you were. And I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by the topic. I'm fascinated by your role. And I'm also thrilled that it's won an award, very, very much well-deserved. But also how this story will then unfold as we hopefully see a conclusion to what's going on. I'm going to hand over to you and just explain all of this to me. Yes, first of all, it's such an important story. And I feel that our job collectively as casters and crew is to keep telling that story, keep reminding people. In fact, um, one of the characters in the play has a line, you know, oh, let's forget about Daphne, you know, let's, let's close this chapter and forget about her. And our job is to make sure that people do not forget about her. Justice has yet to be served, has not been served. She has given her life, you know, exposing corruption and nepotism and kleptocracy. And we need to keep reminding people of her story. And we need to keep fighting for what, you know, and pick up the baton from where she left off and continue that. So um, we, as you rightly mentioned, we recently performed this production in Brussels to two sold-out performances, packed with people. There were some from the, from the Maltese community, however, there were a lot of foreigners and a lot of journalists, and they could very much identify with Daphne's story as well, because most of them in their own countries as well, there has been some horrific murder, assassination of a journalist. So it is something that they strongly identified with. And um, we were also accompanied there by um, Daphne's son, Matthew Corona Galizia, who spoke incredibly well. He spoke beautifully, and, 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 and there was a Q&A after the show, and, and Herman was also there. Um, and it's just so incredibly important that we keep reminding people, that we keep, you know, pushing for the truth. I'm not entirely sure that everybody liked Daphne Caruana Galizia. And at times, her writing was very emotive and it was very confrontational. And I think it's important to remember that we're not necessarily talking about remembering someone that we loved or we liked or that we wanted to have coffee with. We're remembering the story of somebody who was assassinated for seeking the truth, whether you liked her or not. That's a very interesting point. And in fact, the play... Um, I think people appreciated it as well because they actually told us um, it, it does not attempt to whitewash Daphne's legacy. So we do look at the thorny side. My character, the journalist, is extremely critical of her. Um, you know, as journalists, we did have run-ins with her. We did not always agree with her. Sometimes she published, you know, things about, you know, my, my former colleagues, which were very hurtful and not necessarily, you know, we don't always perhaps agree on certain points. But the point remains that she was assassinated for speaking the truth, for uncovering corruption. And whether we, we agree with her or not, that remains the crux of it. Um, and also something which I find all, is always very important when it comes to women across history, I find that women, that the people always tend to neatly try to categorize women as, you know, saints or witches, you know, Madonna or whores. And in fact, most women are neither, you know, they're a complex mixture of, the, of both. So, so, so most of these women are extremely complex characters. If even you look at some of the great women across history, it's not black and white. 
Um, and I think the play does reflect that. So it does not attempt to whitewash her legacy. It looks at the perhaps less uncomfortable sides, aspects of her character and of her writings in particular, but also at the end of it all, I mean, the fact remains that she was assassinated for speaking out the truth. And, you know, that ultimately supersedes everything else. And it's one of those stories, uh, it's one of those events that we in Malta, you mentioned, may want to forget, but the world hasn't. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that, that even when I've been abroad and I said, well, I'm, I'm from Malta, I live in Malta, and more often than not, the fact that a journalist was assassinated for investigating corruption within the government is reference to this country. And I think as we are a small island nation, we're very introspective and we don't, of, we don't always acknowledge what everybody else is looking at and the impact that that has on us. That's a very uncomfortable truth. And the play is sometimes uncomfortable, um, particularly when we performed it locally as well. We could see, you know, um, it, it does create a sense of discomfort, but that's what it's supposed to do. It is an uncomfortable reality. It is still unresolved. The court case is still ongoing. Um, but also, it's a very human story. So one of the characters in the play is um, based on Daphne's son. And that really humanizes it. I mean, it's ultimately a, a son that has lost his mother in the most horrific of circumstances. And to witness what, what he has witnessed... It's, yeah. Tell me about your character. So my character is a journalist. Um, I was cast by, by Herman, who was my editor back when I was a journalist with The Times and is now editor, still editor, is editor-in-chief now of The Times of Malta. Um, and my character starts off very cynical about Daphne. She um, is very critical of her work and of... Um, you know, the, the, the more uncomfortable, the darker sides, you know, the, the, the gossipy tabloid writing that she's sometimes perhaps engaged in. So she sort of, you know, really expounds upon this. But then she slowly starts changing her perspective when she starts seeing the series of events unfold and when she starts tripping off layer after layer after layer and really getting into the root cause and just how complex this case was. So suddenly this just took on immense proportions. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the murder, you know, the, it was just a ripple and, and, and the waves that, that came after that was just so much more than one could possibly have imagined. So you experience it, you see the journalist who's sort of experience, experiencing this story as it unfolds, and you see also other characters stating their point of view. So as I said, there's the character representing Daphne's son, there's a character representing the criminal element, there's the character representing an informant, um, and there's the character representing the police inspector. So you're seeing how this monumental event has you know, rocked the foundations of all these people's lives, whether they wanted it or not. It's not a popular topic in Malta, necessarily. And it's not a popular topic amongst very powerful people in Malta. Did you ever feel uncomfortable? Did you ever feel that you know, maybe you should step away? Or did you just say, I need to be in this? Oh, no. As soon as the moment that Herman told me, I was like, I have to be a part of this. 
I remember it so clearly when he approached me and said, you know, do you want to play a journalist in, in, in my play? And I knew very well from the get-go what the topic was going to be about. I was like, yes. But also, I know Herman's writing. I have followed his writing, his plays and his direction, and I know how nuanced, and I knew it wouldn't be a black or white portrayal. I knew he wouldn't glorify um, Daphne. I knew he would delve into the dichotomy that was inherent in her as a, as a person. Um, so I felt in very safe hands. So I had no trouble. I was not worried about that at all. I would love to see this story change people's minds. Is it coming back? Are we going to see it again in Malta? Yes, yes. We are going to, we are going to perform it again locally, um, probably coinciding with the anniversary of Daphne's death in, in, in October. Um, and we've had multiple invitations to take it abroad. So That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, and as you said, her, her, the anniversary of her death in October, October 17th, it will be five years. And yep. five years still without resolution to this, to this event, to this yep. case. Precisely. So very much, we still need to keep reminding people, we still need to tell the story. The story is relevant and we're here to keep saying it. Can you see a, a solution to this case happening anytime soon? Uh, court cases in Malta. As a journalist, well, court cases in Malta always notoriously take their sweet time, which we all know about, unfortunately. Um, but it's a complex, multi-layered case. So the implications of what happened, even if a person didn't literally, you know, plant the bomb there with their own hands. There are so many other people implicated and involved that until we get to the bottom of it, it's, it's yeah, it's a mess. It's complicated. It's complicated. But I do really hope that justice is served. I think everybody does. I want to come to the second award-winning production as our last topic. And this is Zoom, which is a play based on the COVID effect on our lives. Now, it's ironic because we're coming out of this COVID period and I think Mariella Demek said we would forget very quickly these two years of COVID. I travel an awful lot and I still go to put the mask on and I'm still almost angry because there's been no recognition that we have just been through one of the most significant uh, periods in the last 50 years since the war. We've had this incredible pandemic that has rocked the whole world, taken lives, but also has changed our lives. And this production, Zoom, sums that up. And I've seen pieces from it. Um, run, once again, run this past me. Explain what Zoom was and is. Yes, it was a beautiful idea conceived by Joseph Garley and Tyron Grima and directed by Tyrone Grima. So it was performed right, you know, in bang in the middle of the pandemic, you know, where we're, the art sector was trying to navigate, you know, the, the pandemic and how to get about the restrictions. And obviously it was a very difficult time for the arts because all the theatres were being closed and there were plenty of restrictions. But this was a very interesting and sweet and innovative production because what it did is it utilised the space we, we, we performed in the beautiful historic um, Inquisitor's Palace in Burgum. Um, which had a beautiful, which has a beautiful outdoor courtyard garden, and there was an inner courtyard. So we had an audience seated 
and obviously because we have the restrictions we have to split people right so you can't have a massive room with a lot of people so always abiding by the restrictions in place we had a group of people seated in the outer the, in the, the open air garden open air courtyard we had um, another group seated in the inner courtyard and then we also had people watching online through zoom hence the name of the play so you had three different audiences simultaneously experiencing the same play, but from difficult, different angles. So what one audience saw was not necessarily what the other audience saw um, in terms that they were all broadcast. But you could see, you know, if you're seated in a particular space, you could see sort of the backstage of because also it was sort of like a play within a play. So it was all about they were having this, 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 you know, gathering and then everything goes haywire. It was a comedy of farce, you know. So people were experiencing all these different um, characters and seeing and catching on with what was happening in the other spaces through a screen that was being broadcast, that was being live streamed at, at the same time. So it's very innovative. Um, it was an absolute technical nightmare for the poor technical guys and Keith Kitkuti and, and the rest of the team. Um, but they pulled it off and it was, I really enjoyed it. It was a very sweet production. And I was, I was just so thankful that in, in you know, 2021, I had They Blew Her Up and, and Zoom and I, I was able to perform in a time which was very difficult. Not many, you know, performances were, were taking place. So I feel incredibly privileged to have been a part of them. Leads me to ask about Zoom and in the context of theatre. Do you think that theatre will be impacted long term by this two years of shutdown? Or are we going to flood back to the theatre? Because I'm not seeing us getting back to the theatre quite yet as it was, let's say, in 2019. Yes, I think some people obviously are, are, are still a bit, you know, afraid of, of, of open, you know, of, of enclosed spaces. Um, although, ironically, being in a theatre is one of the safest place one could be because even during the pandemic, I mean, people were seated, people were not talking to each other, people had a mask on, they were not eating, they were not consuming food or drink. So it was really one of the safest places to be, unlike other places. Um, but I think it's it's changed the way we we you know, conceive of theatre as well. It showed us that we could possibly perform theatre in different forms and formats. However, I think that the beauty of that live, you know, um, connection, I think it's something that, that people crave. And in fact, my next uh, production, I'm, um, I'm part of this uh, beautiful um, play called Merry Wives of Windsor, um, that would be held in, in San Anton by, by, by the MADC. Um, it's been a tradition since 1934, which was only paused twice um, since the, that time, once during because of the war and then because of the pandemic. In fact, we've been postponing this for over two years and finally we're there. Um, it's a very feminist play as well under Chris Gutt's direction. He made it a very feminist play. Um, and I think when I speak to people about it, they seem very enthused. And I think, you know, just being out there and you know, witnessing a live performance and being with people. It's a social event as well. And the, you know, stunning backdrop of San Anton Gardens, which will be all lit up with fairy lights. It's, it's just beautiful. So There really is nothing like it, is there? I, 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 I definitely <laughs> believe so. <laughs> I, would, I really hope so. I hope that we don't become lazy as, as a society and avoid going to the theatre and having that absolutely invigorating and real experience of engaging in theatre, which really is very hard to articulate and explain why it's so powerful, but it really, really is. 
It is. I, I, I couldn't have articulated it better than you did, actually. It is so incredibly invigorating. So is this the next thing for you? This is, what's it called? The Merry Wives of Windsor. How lovely. Merry Wives of Windsor Terrace, actually, because we're giving it a, multi, uh, we're giving it a bit of a multi spin. So it's, it's going to be based in Malta. 1979-80, you know, when the British were leaving, were in the process of leaving Malta. So you have all these different elements. You have the British, you have the slimmer wives, you know, I play a slimmer wife. <laughs> and then you have other, you know, elements of multi-society also, also present. So it's, it's, it's a fun and, and, and it's just fun and silly play, you know. It's just a play where you just, you know, go there and you forget all your worries and you laugh your troubles away. And it's... I'm really excited <laughs> for that. I want to say thank you so much, Kim. Just there's been a current theme right the way through this interview. First of all, I had no idea where it was going after you threw me several curveballs. But on top of that, it's been absolutely brilliant to listen to your dedication in every single area of your life to empower women. You really are a blessing to us all. Thank you so much for being on Empowered. It's so kind of you. Thank you so much. And well done to you, you powerful woman. <laughs>